Thank you for listening to this talk produced by the Art Gallery of South Australia. Hello, thank you so much for joining us today for the lunchtime talk. And I'm thrilled to be welcoming and introducing a very special guest of honour, the artist and local treasure, Julia Robinson. Thank you. To discuss this extraordinary work that she created for the 2020 Adelaide Biennial of Australian Art Monster Theatres. And we are in the presence of the toxic goddess, Beatrice. The work has a wonderful history, and I will hand over shortly to, to Julia, and we'll, we'll discuss the, the, the creation story of Beatrice, um, her monstrous hybridity, and, and how, she, how she came in, into being. But many of you might recognise her from the Museum of Economic Botany in the Adelaide Botanic Gardens, where she first took root. So we're thrilled after that process to be able to acquire this work through the incredible generosity of many of our contemporary collectors group and individual donors to be able to support uh, the acquisition of your largest work to date. Mm -hmm. So. Julia, let's talk a little bit about some of the themes in your work, but also how those became entangled to create Beatrice. Yes, sure. Hello, and thanks everyone for coming. I'm very thrilled that Beatrice has now found a new home and that she survived the replanting from Meb and seems to be, I think, even more thriving. There's a little bit more natural light in here, so she seems to be really enjoying that. She's in her element. She is. <laughs> So Beatrice uh, was a, quite a quick work in terms of how she came into my mind. She literally kind of sprang up in my mind, which is not normally how uh, my work goes, but in this case, the stars just aligned and she just kind of emerged. Lee asked me to be in the uh, Adelaide Biennial Monster Theatres and my immediate thought was that it was time to make my favourite monster of all time, which is Skiller who is uh, depicted in the Circe painting over there, which we'll talk about, and is uh, referred to in Homer's Odyssey. And Scylla is this am amazing uh, hybrid kind of creature. She was once a, a beautiful nymph. She was poisoned in the water by Circe and uh, turned into this... you can see this, in the Yes, she's house like standing painting. on her. And she turned into this crazy multi-appendaged, multi-limbed, tentacular creature. She, there's various descriptions of her, including that she has multiple heads, that she has a ring of barking dogs around her waist, and lots and lots of tails. And basically, anyone who tries to sail past her is just devoured messily. And she uh, has an insatiable appetite. In fact, some accounts even say she has a litter of unborn puppies writhing in her womb, which can't be that pleasant for her either um, and contributes to her grumpy nature. But I think she's a remarkable creature. There's not much written about her except a few descriptions and I, I love those kind of monsters or creatures where uh, there isn't a lot said about them because it leaves a lot of space for me to kind of move in and, and kind of to claim that territory. But having decided I wanted to refer to Skiller for Monster Theatres, I also didn't want to simply illustrate her. I wanted other references to come in. And as Lee said, the venue that I was showing in was the Museum of Economic Botany, and I wanted the work that I produced to relate to that venue. So I happened to be reading a book about the history of poison at the time, and literally, I know it sounds made up, but the next chapter 
I opened up, there was this story paraphrased in there by Nathaniel Hawthorne called Rappuccini's Daughter. And it described this woman, Beatrice, who is a toxic uh, woman who um, has a, a toxic plant sister. And it simply says in the book that at the very same moment that Beatrice was born, her sister sprang to life in the garden and they kind of twinned. And her, Beatrice is a creation of her mad scientist father who sort of created her. And she cannot leave the confines of the garden that she lives in because she is toxic to everything that she touches, lizards and birds and, and butterflies. And only she can tend to her sister. Um, even her father can't touch her sister. So she's this kind of contained, dangerous woman. But of course, she um, she's not sort of really aware of this. She's uh, just kind of goes about her daily life. And I knew, it, sort of in that moment, this image of Beatrice, my Beatrice and Skilla, just kind of sprang to life, and I knew I wanted to make this um, this metamorphic kind of creature that was non-figurative and, and very much a kind of metamorphic vision of the two. Um, in the story, Rappuccini's daughter, Beatrice, is described as always wearing purple to match her purple sister and everything she touches just kind of rots. So I wanted this kind of colour scheme going through of the rich, vibrant purples, a kind of luxurious colour, and then this kind of bronze rotting colour. And I also thought I wanted this sort of partial creature. I didn't want to sort of give the whole, the whole picture of Skiller or Beatrice. So that's the kind of backstory of how this, this thing emerged, which I then had to sort of work out how I was going to make, but it just kind of jumped up in my mind and I was like, that's what I'm going to do. Rangley about two days later, I was like, I know what I'm doing. <laughs> and you'd already sketched it out. It, was, sketched, yeah. it, it arrived, she arrived fully formed mm. and dangerous. And um, what's quite interesting about Beatrice, both I guess in terms of that process and approaching you to be in the biennial with a title like Monster Theatres, it was impossible not to have Julia Robinson in, in there. But it was... Interesting that you've long been concerned with ideas around monstrosity and perhaps some of the devices of the monstrous, that being sort of metamorphosis and splicing and hybridity. And in a way, Beatrice is both sort of materially, conceptually and I guess mythically a sort of grafting or a, and a splicing together of the Gothic narrative, uh, the Gothic novella by Nathaniel Hawthorne and then the Greek Homeric Odyssey with the story of, of Scylla, the, the poisoned um, and dangerous goddess turned monstrous. Yeah, so, so the idea of metamorphosis is just absolutely infinitely fascinating to me and it's one of the kind of signifiers of what, what people term the monstrous, the other. Um, this idea of splitting things or hatching or mutating or doubling. So I really thought strongly about those kinds of uh, signifiers when I was devising this piece. So even to the point where the, yes, this kind of hybrid costume or clothing slash skin, um, there's these kind of slashes all along it or these kind of eruptions where you can see a subcolour underneath, um, or yes, or a, a kind of a seam kind of splitting through, or little kind of nobbles that are kind of erupting from the surface, which I don't intend to be illustrative or descriptive of anything particular. They could be many things, sort of wounds or pods opening or orifices, or, um, but equally they are derived from uh, Tudor or Elizabethan costuming techniques, which, you know, this sort of slashing and kind of ripping of, of kind of fabric to reveal sexy under colours or under, under layers. So I really like that idea that there's, 
you know, I can split these forms and there can be more going on under the surface and that you might speculate on how much further they might mutate or grow or even to the point with the little, I call them the little sort of splicings down there, might be kind of little, almost like skink tails that have kind of cut off and are about to kind of grow or keep growing and, you know, the sense that this creature might keep expanding and, and just grow to fill her space. So... Metamorphosis is fantastic and, and wonderful. I've always kind of honed in on scenes in films that show metamorphosis just to see how that genre interprets it. But I love, you know, the literature um, aspect of it too, like how things are described. So I've got that quote. Shall I read that quote? Yeah, because some of the, the touchstones for you in, in your work from European folklore to Greek mythology and also to, to fairy tales, there's quite a few extraordinary writers over time from Angela Carter and Marina Warner who have re-envisioned and rewritten, reimagined some of the odysseys and, and the mythological stories. And a recent book that came out around the same time um, you were working on, on this is Circe by Madeleine Miller. And there's particularly graphic uh, scene which you said inspired some of the thinking around around the sort of moment. I mean there's so much movement in this work and anyway I'll hand you over to, to read a very yeah. uh, deliciously dark and I'm really interested section. in that idea of movement as well because I'm a sculptor and I'm, I'm not personally interested in, in pushing myself or my practice into performance or things like that but I, I like the sculptures to perform and to sort of uh, alludes to movement. But this particular description is, is um, someone describing having witnessed Circe's transformation and it's one of the nymphs and she's all kind of almost sort of giggly and excited about this horrific thing that she's witnessed, kind of hysterical about it. And she says that she sees a leg, a hideous leg like a squid's, boneless and covered in slime. It burst from her belly and another burst beside it and more and more until there were 12 all dangling from her. This was only the beginning. She was bucking, her shoulders writhing, her skin turned grey and her neck began to stretch. From it tore five new heads, each filled with gaping teeth. And all the while she was baying and howling, barking like some wild pack of dogs. It was a relief when she finally dived beneath the waves. So I just love that sort of thing. <laughs> There's plenty of descriptions in that book um, of other transformations when... Circe poisons the Odysseus's men and they turn into swine and their bodies kind of crack open. So, And I think that, you know, as you alluded to before, like in my practice, I never seek to simply take one source and illustrate it. I'm not interested in that. I'm interested in the kind of plethora of things or the gaps that kind of form when you, when you bring things together or you bridge different mythologies or folklores and, and what happens when you look across across different cultures and say, well, that thing exists there and exists there and there's a similarity, but there's also a space for me to kind of wiggle in and find my own voice in there. And that's always been a, a great interest of mine to, to sort of blend and splice stories, blend and splice materials and, and see what kind of emerges out of that sort of chaotic process. And you're very interested in the, the concept of Beatrice as a dangerous woman, as a, as a toxic goddess. Who are some of the other dangerous women yeah, that you so, were um, inspired Marina Warner by? Marina Warner writes about them as well. This idea of a dangerous woman as being a, it's a literary trope, someone who has to be contained within the story somehow and then ultimately dispatched with a view to stopping them from procreating and continuing their species. So that's a sort of literary device. So Skiller is ultimately contained in this cave and then is ultimately killed. And uh, Beatrice was contained in a garden. But it could be someone like uh, Medusa, who's also, you know, someone 
someone who needs to be kind of kept from, from procreating or continuing the species. Or I think even if you look back at sort of other examples of what were considered monstrous beasts, like even early depictions of mermaids with bifurcated tails and, you know, they weren't always depicted or seen as these beautiful, alluring women. They might have been luring with their voices, but they would have been quite hideous um, sea, sea creatures in, in those terms. So that's the idea. I like this idea of the dangerous woman and, and taking it and flipping it on its head. And Circe is, of course, considered a dangerous woman um, because she is sort of a witch in that sense. And the Madeline Miller story takes us through her whole life from birth to, you know, to ageing and sort of gives us a different perspective on, on that kind of uh, woman who's been classified as a witch, which is, a, as we know historically, has been a very dangerous thing to be classified as. And the JW Waterhouse work is a work that, being based in Adelaide, that you have seen and looked at over the years. Mm -hmm. So now that she's just come back from Forli, from her exhibition in, in Italy, after an extended uh, sojourn overseas, um, it's, it's you know, quite wonderful to have them speaking to, to each other um, as well in, in the space. I guess the sort of that moment of, of poisoning the, the pond or the bathing area uh, where Skilla um, well, bathed, and you can just start seeing at the, at the feet of Circe the sort of the tentacles and the serpentine forms about starting to emerge from, from the water. So We so. have the creator and the created in yeah. the room, which I, yeah. I sort of really like that relationship between them, that, that they're kind of eyeing each other off. This big, tall, purple part of Beatrice I consider is her main mouth. She has many, but that's kind of her main mouth. So it is like they are staring at each other. <laughs> yeah, that was strategic when we positioned, yes. <laughs> positioned her. And yeah. also that it's almost like she's in a pool of water, mm. which was um, a change bringing her here from mm. the Museum of Economic Botany. But um, uh, would you mind uh, expanding a little bit further on the, the, the physical structure? It's, you know, it's a singular work in multiple parts, mm. incredible sort of cantilevering, even sort of engineering, some of the classical tropes of sculpture around balance and tension and Contra, contraposto, and you've mentioned in the past the reference to the Greek form of... The sculpture of yes. Scylla? Yes, sorry. Yes. Yeah. yeah, so there's also a very famous sculpture of Scylla, which was uh, in, and I'm forgetting now, Spelonga, and it was part of a big sort of set piece, which was, I think, lost and kind of broken apart, and then the pieces were recovered and they were reconstructed, and there's lots of bits missing, so they've got these sort of rods holding up these parts of this, this marble sculpture, which I thought was fascinating. I love this idea of holding up a piece in space. I, you know, I was saying to my husband the other day, like, oh, gravity is so annoying, like, if you could just <laughs> put something there and it would stay, my life would be a lot easier. Probably I'd be out of a job, though. But I'd, this whole thing of, like, yeah, the classic... How do I problem solve something like getting this thing to sit in space the way I want it to? So I conceived of this, I'd recently made a series of, of works in this same technique. That were um, um, part of when you were selected for the National. That's right. And shown at the Museum of Contemporary Art in Sydney in 2019. Yes. And sort of responding to Hieronymus's Bosch's Garden mm. of Earthly Delights. Which was a lovely tie-in with the Museum of Economic Botany as well. And it's sort of where I got onto these forms. But they were on the wall with this sort of sort of a bracket system and I was like well I want to try them on the floor so I worked out this, this sort of base plate with these rods coming up which as you said then had to be cantilevered so the big blue one there has got a very heavy bottom to sort of weigh it 
I wanted it to look sort of gravity defying. I didn't want to have to have two rods in there if I could. So each of the pieces that's on a brass rod has a metal armature underneath with a, another protruding rod, which is slots on. And inside each of those forms is just a very simple metal armature like a rod in approximately the shape of the, the mouth or the sort of twisting form that I then sort of cut and shape uh, just a cardboard spine or a cross section and sort of make my overall shape that way. I then had a bunch of foam discs of various diameters cut from a phone plate, so I just had like about 100 of them, and then I would just slice them like ribs and sort of sit them into the form in, in sort of diminishing scales to give me the roundness. That form is then covered in uh, fabric interfacing to provide a skin, which I then fill the gaps with expanding foam, and then I give it a bit of a trim because um, expanding foam expands. Uh, and then each piece has, a, I sketch out where I want the seams and the kind of fabric lines to follow. So there's a sort of just a, a, a permanent marker drawing under there of where do I want the forms to go? What do I want to draw attention to in the piece? Like the linearity or the, the sort of spinning nature of it? Where are the seams going to be needed for fabric to stretch that way? Where are they going to be most uh, effective? Uh, and then I, I cut um, all individual pieces of felt. Sometimes I have to dye them a colour to match the fabric above. And then I hand sew everything on. So everything is sewn onto the actual model itself. There's no kind of machine sewing and there's no taking it off like an item of clothing. It's all fitted like a skin. I just move piece by piece. I have to sort of work out where's the final piece going to be seam-wise and start from one end and move along. And often getting quite entangled in the forms as I'm sort of trying to sew awkward angles and... But that's all part of the material problem solving, you know, the conceptual problem solving happens more so early on and then it becomes this amazing material problem to solve, like sculptural problems, like getting it up and looking how I want it to. You make it sound so easy, but it is like the most extraordinary labour and, um, and also entirely self-taught, all of the techniques, a lot of them... Just made up. Just made up, you know, <laughs> just, you know, just thought you'd have a go. But um, no, I mean, it is um, phenomenal that you have, you know, researched some of Elizabethan sewing techniques and, and have, you know, studied those and you're drawing on those conceptually as well as materially to, to make Beatrice in particular and um, some of the preceding works here. If you get up close um, and see just every single individual technique, I mean, the, the hours and hours of, of sewing and preparing. And for this one in particular, you, you want it, because it is so really, you know, engineered and highly balanced and highly constructed and composed and setting out on this with the deadline of a, of a major biennial, you decided to use some 3D printing techniques for the first time to, to allow you to sort of test a few things at a smaller scale before working them up, um, you know. Yeah, so uh, a sketch can only take me so far. I can't really look behind or see what the piece would look like from the other side. So very early on, I was like, okay, well, I need to be able to compose this in space. So I had my friend Jess Taylor, who's an artist and very efficient in that, um, make up just a sort of repertoire of forms that I'd already designed of just various twisty and splitty things. And um, then I just drilled little holes in them and put toothpicks in them and then made a little base, and I just moved it around and around and around. Probably for about two months, I was sort of, no, maybe, about, maybe about a month, I was just sort of moving the pieces around and testing it from every angle, knowing it would be an in-the-round piece. I think I sort of locked in the vertical part of it early on, and then I kept moving the model and kept responding to it. I managed to rent an extra space in my studio to, to build it in so I could work 
in my studio space and then go over to the other space and have it set up for, for sort of at least six months and walk around it daily and just check all the lines and the views. And I wanted it to sort of be up and then kind of leaning and moving that way. And so kind of in the centre, or not actually the centre, but sort of the, that area there where there's no brass rods, I sort of almost imagined there was a drop of poison that hit the ground and that's the sort of sprouting point from which everything emerged and things growing up to the sunlight and kind of moving along and, yeah, that implication that there is more to her than just this, um, that we're not seeing the whole picture and that she might continue growing. Yeah, she's totally dangerous and <laughs> those those points are incredibly sharp are I had my jeweler friend make these yeah copper tips and so they're all individually made to fit each kind of curve of the form and then I'd be kind of casually working in there and I'd suddenly look and there'd be a spike right there and I'd be like oh I just probably should wear glasses if I'm in <laughs> really could lose an eye you know when you're focused on one piece and you don't realize there's a spike next to your eye. <laughs> Even the making of it was dangerous. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, for this incredibly dynamic composition. Um, how are we going for time? Oh, now is a perfect time to open it up for some questions. But firstly, should we all just give a round of applause to Julia? Yeah, Beatrice has already become a centerpiece in the, in, in the Melrose Wing, so. Uh, yes, I'll take. Do import your silks? Yes, no, they're all just Dupian silk, so they've got that, that double thread going through. So each silk is two colours. I get them from DK Fabrics or from Eastern Silks. And Ravi, who owns Eastern Silks, he can see me coming. He knows. He's like, here we go. <laughs> you're, you're his um, favourite yeah, client. Yeah. <laughs> all the How many metres would you like? <laughs> uh, they're from India, from Eastern Silk. He, he gets most of them from India, yeah. Thanks, and the question behind? Yeah, I worked on it for nine months, I think, including the month of prep time, including the thinking and the designing. Um, and I generally work between five and seven days a week on it, or between, it depends how much teaching I'm doing, but holidays, it's every day. So probably at least three months of full-time work on it, and probably the rest of the time was sort of two or three days a week. I, like, for me, this, that's, that's what I enjoy. Like, the studio is a, um, it's my favourite place to be. It's like a hunger. I, I want it in the morning and then I just like to stay there all day and then real hunger sends me home in the you, evening you for have, dinner. You have Skiller's <laughs> insatiable appetite. Pretty much, yeah, yeah. I'm like, gotta get that piece finished, yeah. Yeah, that's a great question it's, um, about the colours of the piece, yeah. I really was responding to the, the colours that Beatrice wears in the story. But then this really lovely serendipitous thing happened that as I was researching toxic plants, the belladonna or the monk's hood came up and that is a purple plant. So even though Nathaniel Hawthorne doesn't exclusively say that in his text, he says that they're these exotic plants that he's created, it would, it would kind of be reasonable to suppose that he was basing it on existing plants and purple. So purple's obviously a very regal colour as well. It's just luscious and beautiful. So those were my primary kind of choices for that reason. But yeah, belladonna is a purple toxic plant, so that was quite, quite serendipitous. And even the, the root aconite is this twisting brown root. So that was a lovely other connection that I hadn't built in, but I'm happy to claim. <laughs> yeah, and there were examples of aconite yeah. in the cabinets of the Museum of Economic Botany that mm. um, of, of almost aconite, exactly the almost same. Exactly, yeah, similar forms. Uh, there's a question here. It wouldn't be as fun. <laughs> it wouldn't be as fun. 
It, it, I honestly don't know if it would be easier because in, occasionally when I've had major shows, you know, I've had very f lovely friends and, and artists say, well, do you need any help, you know, if you're under the pump? And I'm like, I can't get you to help me because I don't know what I'm doing till I'm doing it. I'm making it up as I go along. So although I develop a certain technique, like this cardboard and foam technique, I'm learning it as I go along. I get faster at it. But then every time I come to clad it with fabric, I'm like, well, only I know where I want to put the seams and what sequence I have to sew it in. And also, that's my favourite part. So, yeah. <laughs> Don't want to outsource that. I'd rather not. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Fiona Hall says the same thing. Yeah. She's, she's tried, but it never works. No, no, no. Yeah. I'm also probably a control freak, maybe. <laughs> the nubby things are, well, there's plenty of nubs and knobs in, in nature and the world, but um, they were specifically drawing from those Elizabethan puffs that they pull through. And I'd done these puffs in a previous work, but um, what I failed to do was to put something underneath them. So every time they, the work got moved, they got crushed, and I had to like tease them out. So I, they've all got a wooden bead underneath to, to hold them in place. And it gave them a sort of different reading, a bit more of like a firm, sort of knobbly texture. But um, I, for this context, I think that worked well. Yeah, I think the whole thing is sort of full of that because, you know, tears and slits in fabric is, 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 you know, a bad sign normally in clothing if you tear something. But then if you kind of own it and you're using it as a kind of a device like in, in Elizabethan slashing, it's, um, it becomes more kind of, uh, yeah, intentional. And, um, yeah, I like, I like that sort of, uh, yeah, tension. It's also sort of quite abject, the, the sort of inside out. It's like the yep. inside is like coming out through, through the seams or these sort of... Slits are also like wounds or... Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, The question is, <laughs> do you forget to eat when you're obsessively making art? <laughs> I, look, <laughs> I'm not that obsessive and I like food. <laughs> and um, I can't function without food. You know, I'll, I'll know if I'm starting to like get shaky hands or... Also, you know, this, this kind of labour is... It's tough on my body. So, I've, you know, as I'm getting older, I'm learning to build in more kind of care for my body as I work so that I don't... Um, have a bad neck the next day, especially if I've got a major show, I can't take a day off. So um, eating's a good way to stop and think. And um, But yeah, I mean, I think, you know, when I'm in conceptual stage, I will be, there's a lot of sleepless nights because it's churning over in your brain and you want to hold those thoughts. But once I'm in the making, it's, it's good, you know, I'll have a, a grid of all the pieces that need to be finished and I'll put a sticker on there when I finish a part. So, you know, I know what I can achieve in a day and it's a nice kind of feeling to go home and be like, pieces ticked off, I'm ready for tomorrow. So, yeah. <laughs> Thank you. I think um, that's all the questions we have time for. So um, thank you so much, Julia, for being so generous with your, um, with your work and congratulations on making such a masterpiece that sits in wonderful conversation with JW Waterhouse, with Tracy Emmons' neon there and you know, even through to another Robinson behind us um, and um, Lynette Yadomboaki and Yayo Kusama and Rodan amongst other extraordinary sculptors and thank contemporary you. artists. For so having her here. Thank you. <laughs> thank you very much. And thank you all for joining us. Thank you. So great to see you.